welcome. Thank you for joining us. Um, as people come on late, I'll, I'll add them on. Um, very quickly, basic financial planning we're going to talk about today. My, my short bio at some of these uh, students that you might be doing as you graduate. I responded to an ad after graduating from college with uh, from Prudential Management Training. I wanted nothing to do with sales. I'm thinking, oh, management training, let me get into that. And partly what they were training me to do is be an ordinary life insurance agent. And back then, back in the 80s, I'd be making 100 phone calls a week to get to 10 appointments, two sales a week, et cetera. And probably even my early college recruiting days, I was doing something similar. Uh, but I've learned to do things differently. They, I think they call that working smarter. You know, so I guess uh, maybe that's what I, I became smarter. Who knows? Uh, but now I do a lot of seminar marketing where I'll advertise um, postcards to a particular day. I'm going to be in a library speaking now webinars. And that's how I generate business. And kind of same with recruits. You know, you, instead of chasing a thousand people, I kind of narrow the net down to the people that would really be a strong fit uh, for our program. So I went from Prudential with the great training, great products left them, opened up a storefront auto insurance agency where I used to ride the motorcycle to the office, leave to go coach high school and come back to see what ID cards, whatever I had to fill out that day, where now I do retirement planning, where I help people as they're getting ready to retire. And we talk about their health insurance options, their life insurance options, social security claiming strategies. Um, and I even did for a period of time, financial aid webinars where people used to pay me to help them get the most financial aid from a college. Uh, so. That's a little bit of what's going on. What I'm gonna do here is I'm going to go into a PowerPoint I borrowed and that should cover a lot of the stuff here. So let me just go to that. I'll get that up. And what I'll do is I'll go back to sharing our screen. So let me do that. Uh, share screen. All right, so this should be, here we go. Let me make that a little larger. All right, can everybody see that? Hopefully you all could see that now. Okay. Yes. Oh, thank you. So basic financial planning. We're gonna talk about the financial planning, the pyramid, the process, the concepts and misconceptions. Planning. Well, gee, I gotta cut this uh, tree limb down. But if you don't plan properly, you may accomplish getting that tree down, but you may wind up in a hospital as well. So it's always good to have a plan that just jump into things. And we often talk about the five Ps, meaning proper planning prevents poor performance. Planning means looking ahead and chalking out future courses of actions to be followed. Example, preparing for competitive exams, planning a vacation, Hey, I'm going to go on vacation. I got these days off. We don't just say, okay, what are we going to do? You normally book the hotel, the airlines, or the travel course you're going to go on. It's, you know, so everything in life, whether it's in the classroom, on the athletic field, business, or your personal life requires planning ahead of time if you want to be successful. Financial planning. A lot of times people confuse this. Oh, uh, are you a financial planner? Well, financial planning is usually the process of meeting your life goals through the proper management of your finances, buying a house, higher education. You know, I got to save for my children's education. Do I wait till they're a junior or senior in high school? Do I start when they're younger? Buying a house. Well, I just don't walk into the mortgage broker and say, 
yeah, I want to get a mortgage for a house. You plan ahead of time. Do I have enough for the down payment? Can I meet the mortgage payments? So usually financial planning is the accumulation of assets. That's normally what financial planners focus on. So there is what we call financial planning pyramid. And I have another one I might be able to show you later. Financial planning pyramid. The bottom is you got to protect your wealth. If you don't have the safety of making sure that in emergency you have money or if uh, hazards take place, that assets aren't protected, the whole financial pyramid could crumble. And my manager when I was a prudential agent as a rookie, he used to get a kick out of me because I did uh, silly little things years ago. I would have like baby building blocks. If you remember those, what you would see, uh, the things that you may have for young children, building blocks that maybe the letters of A, B, C on them. Well, what I did is I put on those blocks, I put life insurance, disability, savings account. I did things like that. And I used to my early appointments with people, I actually used to build a pyramid. And I would show them, okay, here's our safety. Here's our emergency fund. Then you go into wealth uh, creation. We're going to accumulate money. I would put that on top. Then at the top, distribution, transferring what you have. And after I built this pyramid in front of people, I'd say, but wait a second, we never took care of your emergency fund. And I pulled the block out from the bottom of the pyramid, the whole thing would topple in front of them. I said, see, this could be your financial future. If you don't take care of the bottom of the pyramid, the top is never going to get there. So I had fun with that, and they, they kind of got a kick out of that. All right, so the financial planning process involves data collection, goal setting, current analysis. So someone says, well, help me plan my future. Well, if I don't know anything about them and I don't know what their goals are, whether their goals for one year from now, five years from now, or what they want to do at retirement, how can you put a plan together? So the first thing is we got to collect data and talk about goals. And the goals need to be realistic. You know, you could say, gee, I want to be a, a billionaire. Well, it's not that you're not going to get there, but depending upon the information you have and what your abilities are, is that realistic? So you want to have realistic goals. You also have want to have stuff that you could maybe have to reach a little bit higher to achieve, right? So then with that information, you draft the plan, you discuss the plan, say, well, I like it, I hate it. And then you make some changes to it to come up with a final plan. So now you've got the plan, but then you go into product su suggestions and there's so many of them out there. So it's kind of like saying, well, I want to go somewhere on vacation. Well, how am I going to do that? Am I going to drive my own car? Am I going to rent a car? Am I going to go by bus, train? So that's kind of what product suggestions are. How's that going to allow you to get to the destination you're looking for? But then the next step here you can see is implement. You're going to execute, all right? So the plan looks good, but if you stick it in a drawer and you never do anything with it, you never take action on the products, it's like, oh, yeah, I talked about that 10 years ago, but I didn't know anything about it. Now it's too late. I missed the boat, so to speak. And then you need to review it because things are constantly changing. And I'll give the example of what I'm doing right now is a lot of the seminars I do are in local libraries. When I, whether I do living trust workshops, estate planning workshops, social security workshops, financial aid workshops, Medicare supplement workshops, I would invite the public to come meet me at a local library and I do presentations. I do those numerous times throughout the year. Well, what happened? COVID-19, I'm not speaking in, in person anymore. I had transitioned a whole thing to webinars. So it's still working. But if I wasn't prepared saying what happens if I can't speak in person, my whole business will be shut down. Like unfortunately, some businesses are right now with the restaurants and bars. So you got to constantly review and monitor because there are things you might have to adjust to get to your goals.
All right, so here's some concepts. Cash flow analysis. And a lot of times that's what my clients count on me for. You know, they don't really refer to me as a financial planner. They mostly refer to me as a cash flow consultant because with my experience and resources, I'm an independent agent. I'm licensed at least 10 different companies. So I'm not out there talking about a particular product or a particular company, but you're coming to me saying, I only have so much money in my hands, but these are my goals. How could I achieve that goal? So we're looking for cash flow, all right? So quick example is if you found $1,000, all right, if we're all lucky enough to find that, what would you do and invest in that? What would be the best thing? And you come up with all these great ideas, but I can guarantee you 21% return immediately. And for many people, that would be simply paying off a credit card balance. So if your credit card is charging 21%, I just improve your cash flow. You no longer have to make that monthly payment and you immediately got 21% return on your dollar. So it's, sometimes it's not always all these high uh, levels of different products out there. It's what can I do to stretch my dollars? You know, I could, using students, when we used to give uh, meal money, when we go on away trips, well, I give you, let's say 40 bucks a day, but you spent it on the best breakfast, breakfast buffet out there. Well, now you have no more money for lunch or dinner. So it's how you use the money you have because it's easier to control what you spend than trying to find more money. So the next thing we look at is current asset allocation, all right? How are you spreading the assets? Is it all in the same place? Is it too risky? Is it too safe? What is your risk profile? Are you the kind of person nervous with losing a penny? Or are you the person that doesn't mind losing it because you know it eventually catches up and comes back again? Then we look at the emergency fund analysis because things happen. Look at right now. People could be out of work for six months. Were they maybe filing bankruptcy or do they have emergency money to fall back on? What about protection planning? Unfortunately, things happen. If you just say, well, nothing ever is going to happen. I'm healthy. I'm a good driver. My family's history. And then also I'm smashing the eyes. I have a family member who was roughly 10 years ago came down with um, ovarian cancer. Thankfully, we caught it at stage 1A. Person was healthy as could be in her 40s. Never seen that coming, but thank God we have protection for that, all right? So you always want to consider that things could happen. Do I have protection for it? Am I risking that I'm going to be out of luck? Then you look at investment planning for goals. What am I looking to achieve? If I need to achieve something in one year, that's going to be different from something I need to achieve at age 65. Then estate planning. Estate planners actually will help you transfer your asset to your heirs. Currently with the estate tax laws, you could transfer billions of dollars spouse to spouse. But when the kids get to inherit it or other heirs, there could be a lot of estate taxes due. And they often say without proper estate planning, you could pay more money in taxes upon the transfer of assets than you paid in federal income tax your entire lifetime. So that's where estate planners come in, which is different from financial planners. Financial planners are helping you accumulate assets, but many times don't really take into account the estate planning issue. Then we have tax planning. Well, maybe you have assets that are causing you tax consequences every year and it's money you're not touching right now. If you simply shifted those assets, you could be getting more um, you could be reducing your, your taxes for the year. Uh, just simply Put in a contribution to an IRA with the same income, you'll pay less taxes. 
So there's a variety of ways with that. And of course, with everything we do, monitor it. You know, you maybe have to rebalance it. Maybe you got to review it. It's like, well, what I thought was working, you know, using us as uh, tennis players. Well, my A game's not working today. I got to go to a B game. It's not that your A game is bad, but it's not working today. So to be successful, I got to use a B game. Same thing here with financial planning. Maybe what you thought would be a good idea in the current climate and the current situation is not the best way to go. So you may have to rebalance and review it. Cash flow analysis. So basically what I referred to earlier, you look at the amount of money you have, what you need to use it for, and depending how you use that, that's how much you have left. So you gotta be careful because it's much easier to control your expenses than to create more money. And that's a lot of times when people meet with me, we look at their retirement situation. We're saying, how much money are you gonna have coming in? What do you need in retirement? So we might have to make some difficult decisions saying, well, this is what you're gonna have. You might have to change your thinking of what you wanna accomplish. You have great ideas, but your income source is not gonna do that. Or if you wanna do that with your income source, you're gonna use all your retirement up in five years and life expectancy could be age 85. So if you're retiring at 65 or 70 and you spent all your money in the first five years of retirement, now what do you do? When we're younger, you have income. Income can always uh, help you do the things you wanna do. But when you go in retirement, a lot of times you don't have the ability to work anymore. So you gotta rethink what you're using the cash for. All right, network and current asset allocation. All right, so you look at what your assets are, minus whatever liabilities. Hey, I got a million dollar home. Yeah, but you got a $999,000 mortgage against it. So what's your net worth, All right? Versus I have that million dollar home and I have a $100,000 mortgage against it. Much different situation. So you look at the assets minus everybody owe money to, whether it's student loans, car loans, uh, mortgage loans, whatever your liabilities are, that's your actual net worth. Okay. And then you look at your current asset allocation, whether your debts, all right? What are the debts that need to be paid immediately versus maybe long-term? You may have mutual funds, part of it. You may own other property besides your home. You may have gold. You know, there are different ways that you could allocate your current assets and they have a different impact on liquidity, which is the key thing when things get tight. Do you have enough money to live on or do you have to take it with penalties Maybe you have less. For example, the real estate, maybe, hey, I got this great investment property, but my tenants, it's going to take me a couple of years to get them out of there and they never pay me rent for the past year. Well, usually in most states, the laws protect the tenant. So now you got to pay for the taxes on that property. Maybe you have a, a mortgage on that property and you're counting on that for income, but your tenants out of work and they haven't paid you money for a year or two and it's gonna take you through the courts a couple of years to get them out of there. So is that really an asset that you wanna keep? Maybe you gotta rethink that, or maybe you have great tenants, no issues, or things are constantly breaking down and you're not as handy as you thought you were, and you gotta hire carpenters, plumbers, et cetera. What's that costing you? So maybe that real estate asset, it's not as profitable as you once thought it could be. And again, risk, you know, people, Gee, I don't want to spend money on a lottery ticket because, oh my God, I, I, that dollar's too too valuable to me. Or, you know what? I'm going to go to the casino. If I lose a hundred bucks, no big deal. I'm a little bit more aggressive. 
So depending upon how aggressive you are or how conservative you are is going to depend upon what you do with your financial planning allocation. Emergency fund. Hey, five years from now, I'm going to conquer the whole world. Whoops, I've been in a hospital. I had this accident happen. All right. So things happen in life. Do we have health insurance to protect us to pay the medical bills? Do we have disability insurance that if I can't work anymore for a period of time, where's my check come from? Right now, people are out of work. They're fur furloughed. People are on 50% income. All right. Or no income as they're waiting for stimulus checks to come in. How do you pay your current bills? Things happen. All right. And if you say, well, that's okay, I got disability coverage. Most disability plans, especially on a long-term care basis, whether it's something you buy on your own or it goes through a group plan, are only going to replace 60% of your income. So if you're only replacing 60% of your income, how are you paying 100% of your bills? So that goes down to cash flow analysis. Are you spending every dollar living paycheck to paycheck? Well, that's okay while well, you got 100% of your paycheck coming in. What happens if it doesn't? So normally what they say with the emergency fund, you want to have enough money put aside, like in a money market account, a short-term CD, savings, things that are very liquid and safe. You want to have money put aside for six months to maybe a year of your normal expenses. If you're not doing that and these emergencies do crop up, kind of like we're going through right now, how do I pay my bills? All right, so I just kind of covered that. You want to have three to six months of your monthly expenses. Sometimes I suggest one year. Short-term cash, short-term deposits, savings accounts. If you put into investments, oh yeah, I got that money in investments. Well, let's say back in March, the market was down by 35%. And now emergency occurs. Now you got to dip into that. Well, you could be hurting, all right? So that's not a smart idea. But if it's in a basic savings basic money market account where the market's not going to affect it. No matter what happens for emergency, you know you have that background behind you. Some people skip this part and they go right into investments while you're actually hurting yourself when emergencies come along. Life insurance, okay? There's two ways of planning for it. And depending upon the advisor you speak with or what you want to do, maybe you want to place income. And I got an example, I'll show you that a little bit later. Hey death of one spouse, well, now we have half our income coming in because I don't have that paycheck anymore. How to replace income? Or maybe you're just going to do it through expenses. Well, if the mortgage is paid off, the family is going to be okay. Well, the example we normally say is, yeah, the mortgage is paid off, but you can't eat the house. So what about the, the heating bill, the electric bill, the water bill? What about the taxes? So now you have no income coming in or half the income and a mortgage is paid off. So that monkey's off your back, but they're still living in that house. It could take a period of time or something I sometimes hear is, well, the house is paid off. They could sell it. True. But it might take six months to a year to sell the house. Where do you get the money to live on next week? So that's what a life insurance does. It's tax-free, it's probate-free, and it allows you to either replace income or expenses immediately there's term insurance, and I'm going to go over that a little bit later, the different types, but term insurance could be 10-year, 20-year, 30-year. It's designed to give you coverage immediately. All right, and then non-life insurance, medical insurance. You know, somebody asked me earlier today about the Affordable Care Act. So you have health insurance, 
that's going to pay for your doctor bills and hospital bills. You have property insurance. Let's say a hurricane comes in, um, these storms come in, and your windows are busted, the roof is damaged. How do you pay for that? That comes on your homeowner's insurance. But maybe your first place you're going to live when you graduate from college is not going to be a home. It's going to be an apartment. And the landlord's not going to replace your property if there's damage to your property. That's what a renter's policy will do. A renter's policy is going to cover your contents. Could be like $25,000, $50,000 of content coverage. All right. And that policy could be like 100, 150 bucks. Maybe nowadays it's up to 200. I'm not involved in property insurance anymore. I did that years ago when I sold car insurance. But I know a renter's policy is going to protect your property. And also, if you can't live in that apartment for a period of time, they give you, um, I'm trying to think of the terminology they used to use. It was um, loss of use coverage. So they might give you $20,000 as reimbursement. And if you can't live in that apartment, you got to go somewhere else for a period of time. Your renter's policy helps you recover that loss. So it's very smart. If you have an apartment, you want to get uh, a renter's insurance, but the property must be in your name. So if you're roommate with somebody else and the lease is not in your name, you might have a hard time getting that. But if the uh, lease is in your name, you do want to get renter's insurance. It says motor insurance, which is basically going to be your car insurance. Hey, I'm a safe driver, but things happen. So you want to be able to get uh, automobile insurance. A lot of times you want to get a high, as high deductible as you could uh, deal with. So sometimes the difference between a $500 deductible for comprehensive and collision, that could be like um, between 500 and 1,000. Maybe they're charging an extra 200 bucks a year in premium. Well, think about it. If you go one or two years without a claim, oh, that money's in your pocket. You basically self-insured yourself. So if you could afford a $1,000 deductible, it's better for you to go for the higher deductible, right? Then there's professional liability insurance. Well, I'll use myself as a teaching pro. If I'm out there teaching and someone sues me because of something I did while teaching or coaching, I have a million dollars of liability insurance as a professional tennis pro. Or with the Rotary Club, there could be directors and officers. We do a fundraising event for the local community and someone says we didn't uh, provide a safe environment and they want to sue us. The Rotary Club provides directors and offers professional liability coverage. So there's many type of different insurance coverages out there. You don't want to be penny wise and pound foolish because one claim could set you back years and years. So you got to evaluate the entire situation. All right. So investment planning, you're going to identify your goals. You're going to analyze how much risk you could take. Are you going to be very conservative, very aggressive? What time frame do you need to reach those goals? And then what products do I need that's going to provide me that protection that I can afford to reach the goal? All right. And then hopefully once you achieve that goal, you have all these nice things that are in your back pocket between your job, between your savings. Maybe there's inheritance coming. Uh, your family could help you out. So there's different things you could use to achieve your goals. Risk versus return, all right? So we talked about it earlier, at the bottom you have cash, then you might go into bonds, you might go in stocks. But if you skip the bottom of the pyramid, you go right into investing heavily and the market crashes, like we've seen this past year, market's been up and down. Now, what do you do? 
So you may want to just follow the path, cash, then maybe bank products, which are going to be very safe. Then you might go a little bit more risky. Then it could be direct equity. So you always got to evaluate the trade-off, the risk versus, you know, what can I get? I could lose my shirt or maybe I rather go tortoise versus the hare. Slow and steady wins the race with most of my money. It all depends upon how aggressive you want to be. And I'll give you a quick example on that. I have a client that came to me and this is a couple of years back before her husband passed away. I was showing that she had uh, with an IRA companies at that time were paying like a 7% interest, which is pretty decent for that time. But the husband found some person he knew about that was going into real estate trusts and he was going to guarantee him 12%. I said, there's no such thing out there. I'd be very careful. Who's it protected by? Oh, no, no. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Well, here's a short story with it. The person wound up going to jail and the person lost all that money. The money they had with me at 7% was guaranteed they didn't lose a penny. But that so-called better pie in the sky where they're showing them great things and nothing ever happened. Well, it was a pyramid scheme and they lost all the money in that. And unfortunately, her husband since passed away because he was worried about how he's going to protect his family and cause him a heart attack. So not always good chasing the higher stuff. If it's not guaranteed, no matter what the track history is, you could you could lose a lot of money that way. So that comes to risk versus return. You have cash, bonds, you can balance it, large cap, specialty, international hire. The more risk you take, the better return you can get, but you could also lose a lot of your principal. So you gotta be careful how much you put at risk because when the bad times come and throughout history, we've had good and bad times, how much of your principal could you afford losing to still protect your family or yourself? Investment planning, time value of money. Well, the sooner you start putting money away, the more interest you can get, the more time's gonna help you. So we often used to show, I had something which I don't have today when I was a prudential agent years ago, that if you put a little amount away for let's say a 40 year period, versus waiting for maybe five years later and putting 10 times the amount of money away, the person put less money away for that 40 year period with the power of compounding actually had more money at retirement than the person that put 10 times more away invested, but they didn't have the time value of money. They actually had less money at retirement. So even if you could put a small amount away, the time value is gonna give you more at a future date. Diversification. Don't put, they often say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So no matter how good something looks, if you diversify and having a couple different baskets, now you don't have to worry about one segment of the population affecting you because you have other things to fall back on. All right. So some people will gamble. Yeah, I could take that risk, but that's all your eggs in one basket versus, well, here I'm going to invest. Maybe I'm going to have some in a basket A, some in basket B, some in basket C. So I'm diversified. Not everything's going to be affected by one shakeup in the economy. Estate planning, again, is involves making plans for a transfer of your estate after death. Your estate is all the property you own, includes cash, jewelry, cars, houses, land, retirement, investing. All that is considered as part of your estate. So life insurance is tax-free to the beneficiary, but in most cases, you own the policy and you might be leaving somebody else as a beneficiary. So when you pass away, that value of that life insurance policy is calculated into your state. 
So it went to your beneficiary tax-free, but when you go to probate your estate, that dollar amount is calculated to the value of your estate. And one of the things you want to do is you want to have a will. Husband and wife, it's normally very easy. Even without a will, it's okay. But I know a situation where uh, there was a couple divorced, um, eight-year-old daughter, and the ex-wife was very negative. When the person passed away, uh, we thought that since the family of the deceased was taking care of cleaning out the apartment, paying for the funeral, all those things, the ex-wife did nothing at all. All they simply want to do is have this mother of this deceased individual named as the executor of the state just to clear things up. And there was really no assets there to talk about, but the ex-wife would not cooperate and block the whole thing. Two years later, after many attorney bills, the estate's still not settled. So you always want to have a will drawn up because people come out of the woodwork and can contest the estate. And then of course, there are different types of trust. There are living trusts, which could avoid probate, um, provides secrecy, or you could have irrevocable trust. So there's so many different trusts. When someone says, oh, I have a trust, which one do you have? But that's part of the estate planning process. And as I mentioned earlier, without proper planning, if you go down the road, sometimes you might see signs, estate sale this weekend. That someone did poor planning with their estate and they got to sell off assets just to pay estate taxes, right? So, or you see some very rich people. If you look up different names of some rich people that passed away, you would be amazed at how poorly planned their estates were. You would think that they were okay, but their financial planner helped them accumulating assets, but did very little with estate planning because you could pay more in estate taxes upon death than you paid in federal income tax your entire life. So tax planning, nothing is certain but death and taxes. So life insurance, tax-free. Home loan principal repayment could be tax-free. Medical claims could be deducted. New tax laws constantly change how this stuff works. Home interest loan, yeah, you could still deduct it, but with standard deductions now, it's not as important as it used to be, but you gotta be careful with new tax laws that might change in the future. All these things could change currently. Life insurance proceeds are tax-free and money that grows within a life insurance policy grows tax deferred. And you could take money out of a policy if it's a permanent policy on a tax-free basis where other investments, you can't do that. In fact, many times we have used life insurance instead of a 529 because now people would actually qualify for more need-based financial aid with money they had in life insurance or annuity products versus money you put in a 529. Is it good for everybody? No, but food for thought. You know, when we families used to come to me and I used to fill out other FAFSA forms for them, if you reposition assets before you fill out the financial aid form, in some cases, people got more financial, and this is need-based financial aid, not merit-based, but the money they had in 529 actually hurt them in some cases. All right, so why are you required? Well, goals keep changing. Look what happened right now in society. So as things change, you want to keep effective current marketing conditions, what your profile is, maybe you have less income now. Maybe you were first married and you had no children, now you got children. So goals are constantly changing, your health could change. So based upon that, you wanna look at what your future financial plan is and say, is it still current with what I need to accomplish or can I accomplish or I need to adjust it? 
you always want to be aware of changes and change, uh, be able to adjust things. Going back to the pyramid, at the bottom, you have life insurance, you have cash flow management, you have emergency funds. If those things aren't there, disability insurance, medical insurance, if you skipped all that, well, then when a disaster happens, you'll never reach the goals here, the estate planning here, because the whole thing fell apart. Common misconceptions is financial planning is for rich, not true. Insurance is financial planning. Well, that's part of it, not all of it. Tax planning is financial planning. No, that's part of it, not all of it. I'm too young to think about it. No, even if you just simply say what the income you have now at your first job, what do you want to accomplish in five years? How am I going to get there? As opposed to, wow, I got all this extra money and I'm still living home with mom and dad. I got a full-time job. Gee, I can have a nice social life. Well, enjoy your time while you're young, but maybe start putting money away for the future and you'll be glad that you did. Um, I have a quick story on that that I shared with the team. I'm not sure what a current team, but I've shared it with teams in the past. It's a story I heard when I was a young prudential agent, all right? And the story goes, there was three horsemen going through the desert in the dark of night. And as they're going through the desert, they hear a voice from the sky say, stop, get off your horses, reach down to the ground, fill your pockets. In the morning, you'll be glad and sad. So they were a little confused, but they took the advice and they quickly filled their pockets and got back in their journey. Well, daylight came. They reached in their pockets and they seen that they had not sand, but diamonds. They were happy that they put some in their pocket. They were sad I could have grabbed so much more. If I only know they were diamonds, I would have taken a lot more. Well, they said that was the story of life insurance. Rarely do I get when I help people out when someone passes away, do I have someone go, oh no, thank you, I got too much. It's always, I'm the first person to want to see because they wish they had taken more, right? So when you think you're too young about financial planning, you'll be glad you did what you did, whatever it is that you started something as opposed to doing nothing. And sometimes people confuse financial planning with investing, they're two different topics. All right, so one of the things we often talk about, failing to plan is planning to fail. So people don't plan to fail, they just simply fail to plan, all right? So what I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna stop that. And I got a few other things to share. Are there any questions anybody has on anything I covered to this point? All right, so being there's no questions, I'm gonna go over into a couple quick scans. Let's see if I can get this to hopefully work. And let's go into scan number 11 here. Yep, Joe, you have a question now? Yeah, Greg, uh, I want to ask you, if you have money in a mutual fund and uh, you want to borrow against it or, or liquidate, what is the tax threshold on it? Well, it depends upon your tax bracket at that time, but it will be based upon what it earned versus what you started with. That difference is subject to taxation. Is it at 10% or 20% if you're over 62? For instance, if I have $70,000 in an IRA and I want to take out $20,000, am I subjected to 10% penalty or 20%? Good question. So IRAs, 401ks, any kind of retirement vehicle, once you're over age 59 and a half, there's no 10% penalty anymore. But what you're subject to is the income tax, that, uh, what your tax brackets at the time that you take it out. 
even even is it is it can you um write it off if if you're using it as a first time home buyer there are certain exclusions for that yes so i'd have to check those term tax codes a lot of times i don't get involved in the tax planning with the client we more like try to help them reach their goals so i have to look that up for you so sorry i don't have a better answer but uh, you don't get the 10 percent penalty when you're beyond age 59 and a half but you are subject to income tax according to the tax bracket you're in. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. All right, so here's something we talked about earlier is if you spend and try to save, very tough. But if you say, I'm gonna take 10%, 5% my income and I'm gonna save it no matter what, I'm gonna put away for save. We usually see people in the first circle end up with little or no savings. It's also true that people in the second circle accumulate dollars for education, retirement, whatever, because if you force yourself to save, for example, if you're a smoker, let's hope you're not, but no matter how much they raise the price of cigarettes, you always have enough money, all right? If you need money for the train ticket, you're able to do that. But if you put off doing things you want to accomplish, there's always hurdles while you never get there. But if you say, I need to save a certain percentage of my income regardless, you want, you're surprising how much money you can save over a lifetime, all right? So let me close that. And I'm gonna go into a second one. Can everybody still see this one? Hopefully I didn't have to stop the share. Can everybody still see this new one? Yes. Good, thank you. All right, so I'm showing you some current things with old things. I mean, this is something I seen with Prudential 20, 30 years ago. It was called financial needs analysis. And what you did is you took your personal assets, your business assets, life insurance, government programs, all these things went into your financial funnel. So that's what you owned. But here's what happened while we're alive. Inflation, taxes, bad investments, disability. Well, I'm gonna save and try to uh, spend and lack of discipline. Well, I'll do it tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow never comes. Well, these are roadblocks while we're alive. And immediately upon death, we used to say there's immediate money. They need to take care of funeral expenses, pay off debts, emergency funds, mortgage or rent payments, taking care of children, educational funds. So when you took all that out, now this is the money that you just left when you needed it. So you think you have a lot of money, but sometimes you don't have as much as you think you have. Let me go into this one here. Uh, we already talked about that. So I'm going to go into number 15. Okay, I'm gonna rotate that. All right, so the last 30 years, the S&P 500, you could see what it actually gained or lost. There's good years, there's bad years. So over a 10 year period, you're gonna have some negative years. The question is, if you are at the point in your life where you're drawing off an investment and the market goes down, how many years is it gonna take you to recover? All right, so there's always gonna be negative years. You could see 2000. Minus 10, 2001, minus 13, 2002, 23. It might take you five or six years to get your own money back. So when you rely upon saying, yeah, the market's gonna recover, true. But when you need to live off that money, here's why I work with people in retirement. They need to maybe reclassify how their investments are allocated. The mutual fund is not good or bad, but when you're going to phase of your life that you no longer have an income check and need to live off of this, you can't afford to have all your assets where three years, it's a down year. You could run out of money in your lifetime. And I will show you that slide in a second. Let me go into, uh, I'll skip the CD. Let me go into the sequence. 
Greg, I can't I can't see that that screen you you you're trying to pop up. I can't get it. Okay, so let me stop the share and let me do it again. So maybe now it will come up. All right, so I'm gonna go into do you see it now? Average general return, is you seeing that on the screen? It's just showing files. It is, okay. So let me stop that. Bear with me a second as I could try to bring this up. Okay. So let's go into it again and see if this comes up this time. Do you see where it's saying different scans there? Is that showing? No, I think it's the same thing. Same thing. Okay, so let me stop that share again. Let me maybe close that off is what I got to do. Uh, okay, give me one second. All right, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to try to share the screen again. And... And hopefully it's coming up and it's not. Okay, good. This is what I wanted. All right. Can you see, I'm bringing up sequence of returns. Can you see that? Yes. Yes. Perfect. Yes. All right. So this is what I do with a lot of people in retirement because a lot of times you talk to people and they'll like to say, my planner told me, or I checked it out, my portfolio is averaging X return. Well, that's a little bit of smoke and mirrors. And I'll show you why here. Let's pretend to the left. The first year someone goes in retirement, the market's doing 31% return. If they're age 72 or older, they got to take a requirement of distribution. So they got to take, in this example, 6% out. Well, six is less than 31, they're okay. The next year, the market did 6.6, .6, you're taking 6% out, you're okay. The next year, you're taking 10% out and you're taking six out again, but because these positive returns early, if we go down here, you see negative years and positive years, but the main thing is early in retirement, when you needed to take withdrawals, you had high positive returns. But if you average all these up, it's 8.2%. Let's go to the right here. Let me just move this down a little bit. Over to the right, first year retirement, like we seen a couple of years ago, minus 26% return, but you got to take a withdrawal. Second year, minus 14%, but you need to take a withdrawal. Third year, positive 19, we need to take a withdrawal. That 19 does not recover what you lost in years 14 over here and this here. So after 14 years, you have no more money. There's nothing more to withdraw. You took out more than was earning, yet when you average all these returns out, both people said, yeah, my portfolio averaged 8% return, but this person has no more money left, 14 years of retirement. This person has it forever. So it's a little deceiving when people say, what's my average return? My portfolio is. Well, it sounds good when a mutual fund says the last three years we averaged. Sounds good, but that doesn't guarantee what you're going to get in retirement. And that's part of what I do with people a lot. Okay. 
So let me follow up with a couple quick things here. I'm going to stop to share. And let me stop what's on the screen here. I'm going to stop that. Okay, so I'm going to do is go into one more thing that we're going to do. I'm going to share the screen again. Okay, so what I want to do is show you some basic financial stuff, basic financial thoughts. Okay. All right, do we see financial thoughts? Yes. Great. All right, so when I meet with people trying to retire, or let's say you're talking about, hey, if a spouse should die and we don't have that income, but the family needs X amount of money. So as an example here, let's say you need $25,000 a year is what you need to replace, either because of retirement or loss of a spouse's income. So they used to say if you withdrew 4% of retirement assets or last forever. Well, that's no longer true. They now say 2.8%. So I'm using three. So if I need 25,000 a year, 3% withdrawal, I need $833,000. So if I had $100,000, hey, they got a lot of money. They got 100 grand. Well, that only lasts them four years. So if I had 200,000, that lasts the same family only um, eight years. So sometimes people think I got a lot of assets, a lot of insurance, you know, I, I got plenty. But when you start doing the numbers, it's amazing how much people really have versus what they really need. Uh, the second thing we talk about in financial when I meet with people, if I gave you a choice, who would take a million dollars now versus one penny and I doubled it every day for 30 days? How many people would rather take the million dollars now versus waiting 30 days? I would. You would. All right. So if you double the penny for 30 days, that comes out to $5.3 million. So it just talks about the time value of money that you don't need a lot, but it, I mean, obviously we can't do that in 30 days, but the idea is that if you keep putting money away on a regular basis, it's amazing how much you can accumulate over a lifetime. Here's another misconception that people don't always understand. Let's say you're at $100,000, the market drops by 20%. So now you only have $80,000. The very next year, it goes up by 20%. Is that good for you? And people think that they're getting their own money back. I'm right back to even, but no. The reality is you're only getting 20% on your 80, which is $96,000. You're still losing money because in the past 100 years, the S&P 500 only averaged 10%. So when you have this 20% drop like we've seen in recent years, it might take you three, four, five years to get your own money back. So here's the example. Year one. You got 10% return on your money. Year two, 10%. Year three, 10%. The fourth year, you lost 10%. What do you have to get in year five? So all five years would average 10%. Who wants to take a guess at that? Can you repeat that? Yes. Let's say for that one negative year of 10%, what return would you have to get in year five so all five years would average 10% return? Any guesses? 20. 20? You're, you're close. Anybody else? I would say 40. Yeah, you're, you're right about on the nose there. You need 35% return for one bad year. 
So sometimes it comes down to not these great investments. It comes down to the story of the tortoise and the hare. Slow and steady wins the race. When you chase high returns, you got to be prepared for high losses as well. So sometimes slow and steady is going to get it accomplished. Now, going through this quickly, I'm not going to try to go into a lot of details here. So if you have a question, please ask me. When we make a general statement about anything, it's a very reckless statement. So when people say cars get good gas mileage, that's not true. If they say all Baruch students are blank, that may not be true. Maybe a certain percentage that's true for, but when you use statements like that, it's reckless. So when people say an annuity is blank, that's not true because there's an immediate annuity, there's a fixed annuity, there's an index annuity, and there's variable. They all have different advantages and disadvantage. Variable annuities that you see a lot of planners maybe try to put people into could be good, but they're also ones that have a lot of fees. Whether you make money or lose money, there's a fee every year. Fixed and index annuities have no fees and 100% of your, your premium is guaranteed. You can never, never, never lose money and it has a guaranteed interest rate. People that took these out years ago fixed are getting a guaranteed interest rate of 4% right now. I mean, think about it. We're going to get guaranteed 4% in today's environment, right? But they're all different for different purposes. Then you have life insurance. Hey, what, what life insurance is good or bad? Well, you're talking about term life, whole life, universal life, or variable. They're all designed for different things. And just about wrapping up here, I'll give you an example. If you look at term life for male 25, and he wants a half a million dollars at standard premiums. Well, if you got a 10-year term life, it's $26 a month. And 10 years refers to it's kind of like you're getting a 10-year lease. After the 11th, uh, into the 11th year, you may have no coverage at all or 10 times the cost to keep the policy. Or, you know, may, maybe you're uninsurable at that point. So now you say, well, no, I'm going to need coverage for at least a 20-year period. Well, now instead of 26 bucks, the same coverage is $55 a month. Well, no, I got this 30-year mortgage, so it's $104 a month. Because keep in mind, life insurance is not guaranteed. They can reject you based upon your health at that time. So now the same individual at age 50 wants the same coverage. Instead of 26, the 10-year term is costing 81. The 30 years costing 243 instead of 104. So what you sometimes do early in life, you do uh, universal life is one way people can maybe get permanent policy. They'll be with you forever because term insurance expires. I have a client I spoke to yesterday. They went to Metropolitan Life years ago before they met me. They're paying $1,000 every six months for $100,000 of term life. He only has two more years and a policy is going to expire. And if he wants to keep it, it'll be $10,000 every six months to keep the coverage. Well, this individual in his 60s has health problems. He would get rejected. There's no company that would keep him. So he has one more year to convert it to a whole life policy only. So when you convert, it's guaranteed no matter what your health is, but they usually only give you one option. Instead of $1,000 for $100,000, it's now going to cost them $1,500 for $25,000. So that's why term life is good for a temporary short period of time. You need still coverage in your 60s and 70s. It can get to be very expensive, but you can't get it at all. So the quick example I'm giving you here is male age 25 for 50,000 of universal $16 a month. We have the same person at age 50, it's gonna cost 61, 
Okay. Um, and I think that covers everything um, I want to cover with you today. So I'll stop the share so I don't hold people up and go past my time. Anybody have any questions? Great job, Greg. Thank you. I try to keep it very general, not to go into a lot of details here. I, I should have done this at the beginning, but I'll, I'll finish with a joke. Don't blame me with it. It's on a, a calendar <laughs> that someone gave me. All right. You'll never guess who I bumped into on the way back from my surgery. Oh, thank you. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> Good one, Greg. Everyone. Excellent, Greg. Everyone. Hey, uh, Coach, a uh, quick question, because uh, we have students on the call. Um, yes. Obviously, students are in college now. They're taking out college loads. Um, I believe if it hasn't changed since when I was in college, you get a six-month grace period. Any advice yeah. to them about what's the best way to pay their loans? Is it better to pay it off the life of the loan, or is it better to pay it up as much as possible up front? Thank you. That's an excellent question. That goes into where I help people with, with um, cash flow planning. Some people may say, well, pay off the higher interest one. Well, maybe good, maybe bad. Let's say you only have 100 bucks to spare each month, and the one at the higher interest rate is requiring $95, and the other ones are only $5. I would say pay your five, pay your five, pay your five, so you can accomplish the other goals you want. So sometimes paying off the higher interest rate is not always the best way to go. It depends on how much money you have towards it. Again, I do a lot of cash flow analysis. How much do you have? What do we need to accomplish? Now let's look at the best options to go with. Good question. Any others? Oh, I see something. Thank you, thank you. Any other questions for today? I mean, if anybody has anything later, you could always email me um, and then can go in more details that you know, might be your personal situation. I just try to keep it general today on some of the different things you might consider with financial planning. I think, Greg, what we should do is try to do maybe next semester, do like a part two type okay. thing. You know, like you said, like maybe even like seniors, we can, you know, make a group for seniors for maybe, like you said, that cash flow analysis and, you know, something that's more for them since they're going to be out in the work world and stuff like okay. that. Or, you know, like I said, just a part two in general. So we'll talk about it offline and all that, you know, next semester. So, no problem. Thanks. This was awesome, Greg. Well, thank you. I appreciate all of you being on. Anything that comes up, just email me and I can help you out. Thank yeah. you. Just right. a reminder to everybody, this will be available on Brook Athletics YouTube in a few days, as well as on podcasts. Um, so uh, you can even go to it in the future. And I'll send out the links again, Johnny, as soon as you send it out to me, okay? Yeah, it should be the tomorrow or Monday when it processes. Okay. Oh, hey, no quick, quick commercial for everybody. If you know anybody in New York that has Medicare supplement, I have one company, I have all the ones I offer. They'll give you New Jersey rates if you come to my office. That'll save you like $75 a month. Only one wow. company's doing it. And I don't know how to reach people in New York that want to save money. So, you know, anybody, tell them to give me a call. Hey, Greg, awesome. I, I, I'm, I'm almost there. So at some point, I'll probably reach out to you. All on, right. another, on another note, since you did all this talking today, you won't be saying much at the coaches meeting next week, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'm all talked out. It's like I had a webinar last night I hosted as well. No, awesome job, man. I, I, really, really helpful. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, everyone, enjoy the rest of your day and enjoy the rest of the week. And maybe, Carrie, you can, 
you can join the financial aid stuff tomorrow. Right. Perfect. Sounds good. All, All right. right. I will everybody. definitely, I'll probably be on. So sounds and good. And again, shoot me his number too. Okay. Yep. I'm going to do it as soon as I log off here. All right. Hey, uh, Thanks, um, Greg. All right. So will we be able to, to uh, get a link for this? Cause I want my kids to see this. Yep. Yeah. yeah we'll send okay. links out when it's time. Okay. Goes. All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks everyone. Enjoy the day. Bye. Thanks. You too. Bye everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for visiting the Brew College Athletics Podcast. To listen to this podcast, you can find it on Anchor FM, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, to name the few. And don't forget also to visit our athletic website, brewcathletics.com. This has been a presentation of the Brew College Sports Information Department.